right, let's, let's move on into the Scriptures. And uh, we've been having a ball with, uh, at least I have, I hope you have, with the story. And we've been looking at Scripture from beginning to end. And a few newcomers have come into the church while we, as we've just been starting this and going, are you trying to tell me you're actually preaching from the Bible? You're actually preaching the Bible, uh, as if it's a, a new concept. Uh, and yes, we are. We're going from front to back, essentially. Uh, Genesis to Revelation. There's 31 messages in that series. It's uh, pastor's suicide to do something like that. Um, but we're ploughing through, but albeit with a few breaks in between, just to give us a bit of respite. And we do want to be open to what the Spirit is saying to the church. And so um, today I'll wrap up one segment of that, and then we're going to have a break for a couple of weeks. Zelvin is going to preach from the heart next week, and then we have a guest speaker um, uh, the, the week after that as well, uh, which is going to be fantastic. So I'll, I'll announce that through the email. And then we'll get back into the story. So those who are following along in your home groups, we're going to pause for a couple of weeks and you can do something in the intermission there. So what I want to talk into today is this, it's this huge section of Scripture in Exodus. I, I was going to say it's the most important part of, of the Old Testament, but each, each part, I mean, we read, we've been through Genesis, we've been through Joshua, we've been through the Exodus. But we hit this moment where we're looking at the Ten Commandments, the how, the why, what's all this about, and the tabernacle. So if we can encompass all of that in one message, we're going to do really well. But we need to get the, the concept of what is going on here. Because if there's one theme that happens right through Scripture, from front to back, there's a mega theme, they call it a meta-narrative. That is that God is working to be tabernacled with His people. God wants to dwell with His people. The Garden of Eden was the perfect template of that. Uh, the garden in, in the end, in Revelation 20, 21, is going to be back to Eden. We're going to do that all again. His plan is not thwarted. But in the meantime, we see the Bible is this journey of us being removed from that presence and then God working dispensationally, and I'll explain that word, to bring us back into relationship and dwell with us in all the many facets of that and in the many eras of time and culture that go along with that. And so, But the cry that comes with that offer of Him dwelling with us is that God wants to dwell with those who want to dwell with Him. And so He doesn't impose Himself upon. He invites. He says, seek and you'll find. Come who are thirsty and drink. And so there's a heart response required from humanity to join with Him in that sense. And so we see this uh, thing called a dispensation begin to appear in the Bible here because we're starting to see there's a shift. And a dispensation means there's a new administration in place. It's a new set of rules of engagement. There's a, there's a whole shift in the way that God is going to relate to humanity. We did relate in this way, and now he's, he's calling, uh, literally in this case, with a trumpet, to saying, that's all shifting, that's not working, we're moving on. God stays the same, He never changes, but the way that He deals with humanity shifts in accordance with the era in which we're living and, in, and according to which chapter of the story we see ourselves in. So you saw Jesus when he came, he, he ushered in a new dispensation as well. He said, you know, you've heard it said, but I say, and a new command I give unto you, a new covenant I give to you. He was ushering in a complete new shift. And what we look at with the Hebrews now is this huge shift where up until this point, there's been no such thing as what we take for granted uh, of morality, human rights, social justice, equality, fairness, anything like that it didn't exist. And there was no written law. Not only for the Hebrews, but globally, because no one could write. And now there was just there was the odd hieroglyph. We're talking Bronze Age world. So this is early, early on in our story. 
And, and God had not defined himself. These people were taken out of Egypt, but they had no clue who God really was. Was he just one of the pantheon of gods that we, that we serve? Is he just an idol? Who is this guy? Hence, let's, let's revert to a golden calf and all this sort of thing. They had no clue what they were doing and they had no understanding who they were and their identity in Christ. And so when we read Scripture, we need to read it in the terms of an understanding of the dispensations. Augustine once said, you can distinguish the ages and if you can, you, the Scriptures harmonise. But Scripture makes very little sense to us if we don't understand the ages in which it's written. Because if we try to relate to God in the same way that Abraham related to God, Moses related to God, the prophets related to God, they were different dispensations. There's a different administration in place in that sense. And so these, these cause the framework under which God deals with us. And I'm just going to put them up on screen there. These are the various dispensations. And we're getting a little bit Bible college here. We don't normally go to this depth. But these are the dispensations that theologians have said God has been working under and ushering us through. There was the age of innocence, which was Genesis, um, from Adam to the fall. The, the era of conscience or moral responsibility from the fall to the end of the flood. The, the dispensation of human government from the end of the flood to Abraham. And you may not even, even recognise those uh, within the scripture. Then there was the era of promise from Genesis 12, from the call of Abraham to the giving of the law. Then there was the law, which we're ushering in here, which is from Exodus 19, from the giving of the law up until the day of Pentecost. Interestingly, not from the day Jesus died, but from Pentecost. And these days are like twin towers in the scriptures, huge days celebrated on the same day, the giving of the law and the giving of the Spirit. Then after Pentecost, it was the, the uh, dispensation of the church. That's the one we're living in now. So God's dealing with us now under a whole set of different rules of engagement to what he did uh, back then. And then ultimately after Christ comes again, the, uh, the dispensation of the fullness of the kingdom. All right, so in this setting where we are now in Exodus, in the age that's about to dawn, God gives the law and begins to relate to humanity on the basis then of law. Now this is very important for us to understand because... We are not under this dispensation, but we behave like we are. We preach like we are. We come to God like we still are. And so what I want to un unravel for us today is why we do that and why we should not do that and why it doesn't really work. Okay? So these dispensations are fascinating. And you look at why this had to happen. In Romans 5.13, Paul says, talking about this moment, to be sure sin was in the world before the law was given, so before this new dispensation happened, sin was already there, but sin was not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Interesting. So now the, the law is about to come in, the Ten Commandments are about to come in, now sin is to be judged in accordance with the new dispensation, whereas it wasn't before. Fascinating stuff. And so God ushers his people into a new relationship and he does it based in things that they can understand. They have no Bible. They have no understanding. They have nothing written down that they can read. They don't know what's going on. So God has to use the one thing they understand. And you'll never guess what that is. Or maybe you will. Who can guess what was the, what was the process that God used to communicate what he was doing with his people? Did anyone, anyone know? Marriage. Mate, have you read my notes? Read the book. Marriage was actually all they had. And they had this process of betrothal and marriage in the old Hebrew culture. And this process went along this way, and you'll recognize some of this uh, from the New Testament because it gets referred to. First of all, it starts with the naming and the intention of the bride and the groom. They, they come together, and the groom says to the bride, you will be my treasured possession. 
That's a part of the process. He, they had to say those words. Then comes this next act called the ketubah. And in the ketubah, it's what we would call a prenuptial agreement, where it's, it's laying out the conditions of what this relationship's going to look like. So the ketubah would come out and they would agree, here are the terms under which we're going to be married. Then the groom says, I go now to prepare a place for you, because in my father's house there are many rooms. Ring a bell? When I return, I will take you up. This word, that's the word rapture. When I return, I will take you up to be with me. And that taking up is signified by a thing called the huppah and a trumpet call. A trumpet blast will happen and then the bride is taken up. So you'll recognize some of that from the New Testament. So Jesus used those same terms when he was ushering in a new dispensation. So it starts with the betrothal, you will be my treasured possession. So in Exodus 19, 4 to 6, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings. I brought you to myself. Now if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, and we'll talk about that, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. So he's now proposing to the Hebrews. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Fascinating term, kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he's starting to lay out the ground rules. Here's what this marriage is going to look like once it's consummated. So they're camped at now at the foot of Mount Sinai, the place of calling, the place of fiery fire, the word actually means. And so Moses, over an 11-month period, takes seven trips up the mountain, and they're thinking half the time he's not coming back. He's just gone. What's he eating? How's he dwelling? They're hearing all sorts of stuff, and they don't know what's going on. And through this process, the Hebrew people were told at times to keep their distance. And it can be confusing if you're reading the whole text, you think, is God saying come near or is he saying stay away? But it starts out saying keep your distance, just Moses, keep your distance. Then ultimately it comes to the point where God invites them and says, now, come, come, come close, because the, the ketubah is being released. And that ketubah is that prenuptial agreement. Now, the prenuptial agreements are not so much uh, conditions of the marriage, they are the proof of the relationship, proof of love, if I could put it that way. So the ketubah came down in the form of two tablets that we know as the Ten Commandments. Here are the, the conditions of our relationship. This is how much I love you. I'm bringing in this, these guidelines under which we live. And we look at them and go, man, they're pretty restrictive guidelines. But in our day, we look at that and we go, dude, that's really tough. In, for their day, where there was no law... There was no protection for humanity. There was no such thing as a day off, let alone a Sabbath day. There was no protection for women because a man could take another person's wife and just take her. He could rape her and leave her and there was no law to say that was wrong. Now it's saying you can't even think about that. You, for the women are going, man, I like the conditions of this marriage. This is going to be good. And so this was a, a presentation of a prenuptial agreement. But to break the ketubah, even before the actual marriage ceremony, was a declaration of unfaithfulness to the, to the covenant. So even before the marriage is consummated, if you broke the terms and conditions of the ketubah, then you are guilty of adultery in that sort of sense. So very strict sort of guidelines. Okay, then you get to the huppah. This is the exciting part. So now God invites them to come close. Because we're coming to the huppah, which is like the covering where they're supposed to consummate the marriage with all the people around uh, underneath the covering, hopefully with a bit of a screen there. Um, but it's, a, you know, it's, it's, talk about, well, let's not talk about. <laughs> so in Exodus 20, we get to this stage of the huppah, where God's inviting them to come close. And the huppah, when God makes a huppah, he makes a huppah huppah. This thing's a, this is a big sucker, right? So, because uh, he, he wants to marry a whole people. And, and so what happens is over Sinai, um, and the scripture, the Hebrew words really struggle to depict what they're seeing. 
And if you're reading the NIV or one of the current translations, it will use words and they're actually sort of out of place. Let me read it to you in, in Exodus 20, 18. When the people saw the thunder, you note you can't see thunder. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet, there it is, this is close now, the trumpet's being, being rung, ringing out, and they saw the mountain in smoke, There's, that's all the hoopah, they trembled with fear and they put their hand up and this was the moment. It's like, it's like the, the engaged lady going, I've got second thoughts. I just need to go and think about this. It's not you, it's me. You know? and, and they've sort of come back and they've, and they've said, no, we want to stay at distance and speak to us yourself. They say to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And at that point, the whole process goes on pause. And what we see here, and this is where the depth in the Hebrews is fascinating, the words for thunder and lightning. So lightning is the word lapid uh, in, in Hebrew, and it's right through the Old Testament, lapid. This word is lapid, lapid. It's like uh, whatever it means, double up, so amplify. And the word actually means that it's, it's only translated once in the Old Testament to say lightning. In every other context, it's translated with the word flame. So if we were, if we were truer to the Hebrew, the because this is, we've translated it in English largely to say what we believe it's supposed to say. But if you say what it actually says, it says, they saw flame, flame. So they saw, they saw multiple flames. And they heard thunder, it says. That's the word kole, but it's kole, kole. It's like they heard thunder, thunder. But it, it's the only place in Scripture where it's translated in English to be thunder. In every other context, in every other time it's translated, it's voices. So they saw flames and voices. No wonder what freaked them out. So there's a big cloud, there's a trumpet crying, and they're seeing flames and hearing voices. Now, we, what we should be able to draw there is, remember the two pillars I talked about? The law was given, the Ten Commandments were given, and Pentecost was a celebration of this day when the law was given. So now Pentecost comes, Jesus says, wait, tarry, you've got to wait for me because there's a new covenant, there's a new dispensation coming in. On the day of Pentecost, they're celebrating lapid, lapid, and, and kole, kole, flames, and voices. And what happens at Pentecost? A flame comes again on everyone's head and voices are heard, many voices, many nations, many tongues. And a new dispensation comes in where the law is out and the spirit is in. And that which is impossible now becomes inevitable in our life. But it's the same day, it's the same moment. And suddenly the church, God's bride, has said, yes. And we're under the hoopah and the flames and the voices come out. But now everyone has a flame on their head. Everyone has a voice. And, and the consummation of the wedding takes place. And only from that point in Scripture do we ever hear the term again that you will be a kingdom of priests, you will be a holy people, because the marriage has finally been consummated. Aren't we in an amazing age? All that they dreamt of, all that could have been that was paused back then, is now our reality as we go through life. It's fantastic. But what they experienced was a, an awkward, stalled relationship. Moses got fed up, he broke the marriage covenant, the, the ketubah was smashed, he comes down again later on, he pulls himself together and prays, and he comes down with a new version of the ketubah, so the Ten Commandments come back. But they want to keep them safe, and so they kept them waiting uh, in safekeeping in the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. But God would dwell very close to them as a people, but he would also stay at a distance. The tension that we often find ourselves in when we operate under a mindset of shame and of law and of rules. God is close, but we keep God at a distance. We want him there. We want him near us. 
but just at a hand's breadth away. Thank you very much. And so a veil would hide God from their presence. And so we too live with that same awkwardness if we live from that old dispensation. And so what they then do is God says, I've got to work out this awkwardness of our relationship. I want to dwell with you. I want to stay with you while you're still putting your hand up for me to stay away. So he comes up with this whole concept of the tabernacle. And in the New Testament, it says that Jesus now is tabernacling, tabernacling, uh, dwelling, same word, with us. So we are now the tabernacle. And so this thing becomes a symbol of what we now enjoy all the time. So I've got a video, and I'm going to try and work through this. I'm probably going to lame up the narrative on this, but I put a video together. That, oh, sorry, I grabbed the video that depicts the temple because for us visual learners, uh, we can get an idea of the size of this thing. So this is the size. It's about 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and it's surrounded by a curtain of white linen, seven feet tall, so only the Goliath of the world could actually see in. And at the beginning, as you get through the outer gate there, you get this um, court where people can dwell, but to get any further, they've got to come through, there it is, the bronze altar. And bronze represents humanity. Um, it represents this it's mixture of, of good and evil and sin. And so they have an altar of sacrifice there, where before you go anywhere near God's presence, you had to, there had to be a sacrifice for sin. And so they had little lambies and goats and all the beautiful things. We think, how's anyone going to kill that? We're not going to watch that part. We've edited that out. Uh, but this would happen day in, day out, that the sacrifice would happen. And then ultimately we'll see that the priest would put the blood of the lambs and the goats on the altar. And that would give them permission then because that would atone for the sins of the people. And once a year they would go even further in. Then once we get past there, we see that the, this is called uh, just the outer courtyard, which represents the physical world, represents our, our body, so to speak. Then you get the laver which represents a setting apart, it's a cleansing place where word and spirit sort of cleanses, so they would ceremonially wash their hands, and that represents a separation from the world. So it's taking, even though I'm, I'm there in my body, I'm now going to go into the holy place um, where it's a realm typifying the soul of man dwelling with God. And so we get into this incredible little centre that's in Bronze Age world with things that represent vital things um, to the people and their relationship with God. So the first thing we, we see there is the menorah up on the left there. That, this menorah is a lampstand that represents uh, the fire of Sinai and the calling of God. It's also the light of the world and this typified Jesus, the light of the world and it was a memorial representing the Spirit's work in our life. Then you have the table of the shewbread and this shewbread was a special bread that always had to be replenished. It's the bread of life. Again, another symbol of Jesus that we, that we take him and we take his word and we consume it day in, day out. And this is all in the area of the soul, the unseen in humanity. And so it's the ever-present uh, bread of life. Then we have the altar of incense and this represents our prayers the, the, in the realm of the soul where the prayers would rise day and night up to God. And so the priest would come and put special incense on there. And it's directly in front of the veil to say, if you want to come into God's presence, which is a spiritual act as opposed to an act of the soul, then the prayers need to go up first. And then we'd go through into the Holy of Holies, where the priest could only go once a year, through the veil. And don't, don't forget that veil. And then we see the Ark of the Covenant, true to scale, with the two angels protecting, and God's presence would dwell between the angels. Uh, and inside the Ark were, were a few... Um, Ceremony, not ceremony, they were very real, but they're representative um, uh, relics of the vitalness of the Hebrews. So we have the Ten Commandments, I'm taking, that's not the real ones, I think they've crumbled since then. We have Aaron's rod that budded, 
and we have a bit of the manna that they went with in the garden. And then we have the mercy seat where he places the blood of sacrifice. So uh, every, to dwell with God spiritually still required that blood of the sacrifice to be on there. So between the law and God's presence required the blood of sacrifice. And so it's a fascinating picture of how he used to dwell with man. And all that is symbolized and is representative of what you and I enjoy every second of every day. It's quite, for me, it's a startling concept. And you could spend weeks studying the relics of the, of the tabernacle and get a lot out of that. But what it symbolizes is our reality. And this is where I want to really grind this into us right now. Because in John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling place, His tabernacle among us. So all that was represented there is, is, and I wonder how much we value that. Because Paul would say that you are the, now the temple. You are that. That is now you. Body, soul, spirit. Prayers of incense, sacrifice in your life. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you now? The presence of God is there, 1 Corinthians 6. But he goes deeper and he says something even more profound, which I've, I've preached on a few times now. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Do you know that you yourselves, so that's you, remember our word, all y'all, do you not know that all y'all are God's temple and, and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, and he's talking now about really the church, if anyone destroys, speaks against, grumbles against, you know, all the stuff that we, we would love to say, stop doing that. If anyone does that, uh, you're working against the temple. For God's temple is sacred, and you together, he says, to all your, you together are the temple. So there's so many layers to this. So you are the temple, but we are the temple together, and we're all living stones. This, this thing that we are, this thing that happens on, on a Sunday, we can, we can secularize that as much as we try. We can say, we can go online and do that. You know, and, and online's here to stay. But nothing can replace what happens here on a Sunday? What's happened here all weekend? Because all together, when we become together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and He dwells in our midst. I call it the synergy of faith. When God's people come together and all the stones are together, we should never devalue the gathering of God's people. This is what I say. Don't come casually. Come as often as you humanly can be here. Because what it does is, A, it, it values the temple that is God's and it values each other. It says, I'm here because you matter, and this matters, and what we do here matters, and it always will matter. It's never going to get too old to gather God's people together. But when we look at this dispensation idea, we've got to understand that the two dispensations don't coexist. What we just looked at there is not the reality that we now live in, in the sense where God is separate. We don't live under the law in that sense anymore, and this is going to strike hard at the part of our soul that still is driven by the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a judgment-based curse, which works really well in a law-based, shame-based environment, works great there. He's right, he's wrong, you're guilty, you're bad, God's good, you're bad, work a lot harder than you are, you're never going to make it, but just get going with that. That's the old dispensation. Jesus ushered in a whole new dispensation. But we can choose, even in the midst, while that new dispensation is there, God deals with us according to grace. We can choose to engage with him under the old dispensation. And a lot of what Paul wrote says, you can try that, but it's not going to work out too well for you. If you go back to the law, if you want to start saying you have to be circumcised or you have to be perfect or you have to be anything, if you want to come under that in any part, you better come under that in every part. And you better work a lot harder than you, than you have been because you're not going to make it. 
The law will never get you anywhere. He's saying that that dispensation is gone and it's only through Christ's blood on the altar once and for all that that dispensation could leave and it's left once and for all. But you can choose to re-engage with it if you wish at your own peril. 2 Corinthians 3.13, he says, even to this day, even to this day, this is Paul talking to New Testament believers, when Moses is read, in other words, when the law comes out, if we want to live under that, that veil that we just saw that was torn apart, that veil comes back and it covers our hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord Jesus, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we've got to choose which dispensation. You've got to, you've got to pick one. You can't straddle this thing. You can't live with guilt and condemnation in your heart and still claim to live under the new dispensation of Christ, which is the mercy seat, which is grace. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews goes into so much detail that his, his sacrifice cleansed your conscience, cleansed our guilty conscience. It's an unspeakable gift. It's so unspeakable we can't quite grasp it because we still feel a bit guilty when we do something wrong. He's saying, well, that's a feeling, but it's not a reality. John, the apostle, says that Jesus Christ was the propitiation for your sin. And that word means that wrath has been removed once and for all. It was a legal term, once and for all, by the offering of a gift. That blood that's on the, on the mercy seat is Jesus' blood. And Hebrews says you can now come confidently into the Lord's presence based on that sacrifice that's been made once and for all. Incredibly powerful. If you've been staying away from God because you think he's angry at you, Looking at scripture, it's actually, if you're coming under grace, it's not possible. He will discipline. Discipline is different from judgment. His grace upon your life. Can we understand grace? Can we live under grace? Christ's empowering presence, freely given for those who place their faith in him. So what's the take home for us in, in this day and age? We don't have temples and deserts and all the wandering. Obviously, it's an incredible honor to live with this, this spirit within all the time. This last, this, you know, last Sunday just gone was Pentecost Sunday. I wish I'd have taken the moment and brought the, the series forward. We could have just celebrated and set fire to the pulpit or something, you know, just to, just to represent the flame and just get the picture of that. What it means is that each one of us here, each one of you, everyone, I'm the one using my gift right now, but there's a flame on all of your heads. There's a flame burning. The Spirit is burning. Voices, flames. It's time for us. It's your time to use that gift of the Holy Spirit that He's given you, to live from that presence of God that's with you all the time, to not live as if He's not there, to not live as if, all well, I've been bad today, He can't do anything through me. It's not because of your performance. It's because of His grace that He lives in our life. But God, God does not want to be kept at a distance. Yesterday, I just love yesterday, you know, we were preaching and we were teaching and we were praying and we were seeing the Holy Spirit manifest because what happens is we don't understand, do we? We don't know. It's all theory. I can talk about this, but what's it look like to have an experience of the Holy Spirit bursting out of our life? The power that comes with that. The anointing and the gifting. The evangelism that comes from that. And so we stay locked down. But if we choose to stay locked down, we're staying under that old covenant. We're not taking advantage of this new thing that He's given us. There's fire in you. There's fire on you. It's time to let it loose. Come on, baby. It's about time you said something. Where have you been? <laughs> and so what I'd just love us to do is just stand together as the band comes up and worship. 
And if that's you, there's an anointing, there's a, there's a latent anointing that, that's, that's stayed in this room from the weekend. There's been so much of the Spirit at work. We just want to dwell in the presence as, as the temple of God's presence and release that into anyone who just wants to fan that flame into gift. And we'll have the prayer team over there and they'll lay hands on you and they'll, they'll pray that the Spirit would just be released in a new way in your life. This thing is caught much more than it's taught. But it requires, as I said at the very beginning, this covenant comes from those who seek after the one who wants to dwell with us. Do you want that? Or do you want to just keep going on in life, trying to behave yourself and being a good human until you die? Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you for this tabernacle that you've given us. We thank you for the Spirit. Just coming to mind as Ephesians 4 verse 1, live a life worthy of the calling that you've received, worthy of this spirit that's within us. That, that he's in us. He likes it there, but he wants to get out. He wants to break out of conservatism. He wants to break out of shame and, and guilt and all the stuff that we find so natural and just flow like living waters, a stream that Jesus has promised and that so many of us now are beginning to experience. Father, we just thank you that this journey that we're on is not one of performance, one of power we thank you for Sinai and all it represents we thank you when we just say yes to the proposal and thank you for consuming that marriage in Jesus name